by Nephi. Working righteous Harry Carey. On the other hand, you have the Indians, a group of untrustworthy savages. Welcome back, dear listener, to the I, Nephi podcast, part four, Through a Glass Saintly. Despite the efforts of hundreds of thousands of missionaries and millions of member missionaries and almost two centuries of restoration, Mormons comprise, at a generous estimate, 0.2% of the global population. We are undeniably a minority. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. So, growing up, it was always so exciting to see our people and witness our values being represented in the media. Maybe it was the Osmonds on TV or Randy Bachman taking care of business in the billboard charts or the compound inexplicability of Congressman Burgess Owens. We thrill to Sean Bradley dibbling the round ball or Steve Young footing the other kind of ball, which, if regarded strictly from an axial cross-section, is also round. I am not a sports guy. From Brandon Flowers on Modern Radio to the Jets in that Kool-Aid commercial, we love seeing Mormons in the media. Some celebrities were merely raised Mormon. Christina Aguilera, before she was dirty, Paul Walker, before he was furious, Ryan Gosling, before he matured into Ryan Goose, Wynn Butler of Alt-Rocker's Arcade Fire spent his primary years across town from me. His grandmother was an LDS singing group, the King Sisters. Consider Eliza Dushku, Katherine Heigl, Julianne Huff, Amy Adams, Makes plural marriage seem a bit more appealing, no? (laughs) Some have converted, like Gladys Knight, Rick Schroeder, or you know. More like Glenn Yich, am I right? Some famous folks have married LDS, like Isaac Asimov, Larry King. (laughs) I know you have a record on my wife, because I married a Mormon, it should be stated. And Rodney Dangerfield. I do. Oh, you have no idea what I want to do. Gossip swirls around a certain type of high-profile Gentile, like Tom Hanks or Steve Martin. Folks who don't cuss much, or have an unusual number of siblings, or just seem nice. Rumors that they once took the discussions, or conspicuously ate a piece of white bread with their right hand. Houston's television news community boasts a few famous Moes. Jim Siebert, meteorologist for Fox 26, shares lovely videos of his singing family. Art Rascone, correspondent for ABC 13, serves as a stake president in Area 70. Gifford Nielsen was a love ya blue era Houston oiler and did sports on CBS 11 for years. He's now a member of the 70. Back in the day, it was a gentle boast to share an experience of hearing Brother Giff speak at a fireside or shaking his powerful, ball-flinging hand. Exclamation point. 
There was a time when theater was a more integral part of the church. Cultural hall stages included well-appointed lighting and sound systems. Rambunctious children climbed the curtain ropes, flipped the light switches, and hid in the folding chair storage wells. Talent shows and stake plays were encouraged for entertainment, fellowship, and sharing the gospel message. Anybody remember road shows? In the 70s, a musical debuted that gave Mormons something like their very own God spell. Saturday's Warrior, originally written as a college project by Douglas Stewart and Lex Diaz-Avedo, became a phenomenon, inspiring regional productions, one of which some of my family members participated in. We had the t-shirts with a guy holding the sword around our house for years. A number of other LDS-themed musicals came and went during that era, but none as enduring. The title, Saturday's Warrior, refers to the mid-20th century generation of LDS living in the Saturday night of the eternal clock, with Christ's prophesied return due on Sunday morning, which will be sometime soon. 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 Pretty soon. Just around the corner. And each member of this chosen generation, or few generations, is a warrior, clad in the armor of God. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Ready to do battle with the adversary. Lucifer! Lucifer! You call? You got your father and mother, sister and brother. Saturday's Warrior reached a new generation through a popular 1989 VHS release. We wore out a copy of it at our house. The story is engaging and the music is solid. Isn't there a someone with a hand to spare? narrative introduces several items of folk doctrine that do not strictly jive with official canon, even prompting repudiations from general authorities. A premortal child fraternizes with the soul of a recently deceased sibling. Soulmates and mission companions share oaths before departing for earth life. The waning prevalence of zero population theory makes that song ring hollow but it was still included in a 2016 film adaptation, a period piece set in the 70s of its conception. Maybe in another 20 years, if the last minutes of the celestial Saturday night have yet not elapsed, a 3D hologram version might be produced. There are many additional examples of Mormon celebrities reflecting the glow of our sweet spirits back to us from TV and movie screens, but I will highlight one more. Gordon Jump was a venerable film and TV actor who converted in the 60s. He appeared in a few BYU films and as Peter in the 1969 Temple film. He played the lonely Maytag repairman and radio station boss Arthur Carlson in WKRP in Cincinnati. As God is my witness, I thought turkeys could fly. Swear to God, that's taking his name in vain, Gord. Now the world don't move to the beat of just... In 1983, Jump guest starred in Different Strokes, 
a primetime comedy about a beneficent Anglo bachelor who adopts two African-American brothers and raises them in his Park Avenue penthouse. Hey, they stole that premise from the Lamanite Placement Program. This series made a star of diminutive Gary Coleman, who played youngest son Arnold. What you talking about, Dad? Coleman spent his final years in Utah, moving there after playing a minor role in the Mollywood film Church Ball and marrying a Utah native. In The Bicycle Man, a very special episode spanning two half hours, Arnold and his friend Dudley are enticed to hang out in the back room of a bike shop owned by Jump's Mr. Horton. Was the similarity between Horton and Mormon intentional? Who can say? What follows is almost an accelerated primer in child grooming. Mr. Mormon, <coughs> Mr. Horton, excuse me, plies the boys with treats and shows them pornographic comic books and cartoons, steadily eroding their boundaries. He gets them tipsy on wine and convinces Dudley to pose for shirtless Polaroids, having ascertained he is the more vulnerable of the two, dividing the boys. Arnold avoids further encounters, but betrays his sworn secrecy in time for Dudley to be rescued from serious harm. In TV fashion, all ends well and viewers are encouraged to report child abuse to law enforcement. In the early 80s, there was a lot of discussion in the media of child sexual abuse, teaching strategies like no, go, tell. This effort came too late for a lot of kids, but I hope since then, kids my age felt more empowered to resist and to find trusted adults to confide in. I always had a weird feeling these messages were relevant to me, but I didn't have a full understanding why until many years later. The worst offender I've personally known was invisible for decades and protected by church officials, given only disfellowshipment, which was recently changed to the toothless designation formal membership restrictions. Hardly inapt punishment. It might have seemed against type for an affable, ostensibly harmless LDS man to portray a predator, but this is so much more often an accurate profile than some nameless scumbag in a cargo van. Finally, I present a piece of short fiction inspired by the legacy of Saturday's Warrior. The setting, Texas, 1978. Jack has been inspired to produce a homegrown sci-fi musical version of the Book of Mormon. He is counting on the participation of a fellow ward member, Tyler, but he's had a change of heart. Please enjoy Exeunt. Jack Wilson raised his garage door, standing with his arms stretched up and enjoying a mild breeze. Smells of poster paint and paper mache paste hung in the stale air. A 73 Chevy station wagon stared back at him from the driveway. The garage was presently taken over by sets and props for an upcoming production of Star Exodus, a science fiction adaptation of the story of Nephi and his family's journey to the Promised Land from his favorite book, The Book of Mormon. He had been inspired by a touring production of Saturday's Warrior and the movie Star Wars to create a spectacle that would attract and captivate an audience and impart a powerful gospel message at the same time. It was a considerable undertaking, but to Jack, a noble one. His love for the message was equal to that for his neighbors and for the craft of the stage. Star Exodus would come to life for two glorious nights plus a matinee at the San Jacinto Community College Theater. If 800 of his fellow Latter-day Saints each brought a non-member guest to the play, the shows would sell out 
and they would all be ready to hear more about the one true church. The missionaries would be baptizing people for months afterward. The thought of all those immersed bodies made his skin feel cool in the humid afternoon. Jack was surprised to see Tyler Brooks pulling up in front of his house. Ty crossed the yard toward him, extended his hand. Howdy, Brother Brooks, said Jack as he shook. We missed you the last couple weeks. Everything okay? Ty nodded. You gotta see this. I worked out the sword gag, said Jack, leading him to the garage. Jack picked up a fluorescent work light rigged with a silver handle at one end. It flickered on and he swung it menacingly, making a buzzing sound with his lips. When Nephi slays Ilban, it's a laser sword, so there's no blood. We'll hide the cord through his costume. Ty nodded again. You get everything squared away with your dad? asked Jack. I heard it came suddenly. Everything's been taken care of, said Ty. That's great. I'm glad to hear it, said Jack. Well, you ready to get back into rehearsals? Ty regarded a brown patch on the lawn a moment and finally replied, I'm out, Jack. Well, there's still a few weeks to get your part down. I can't do it anymore, Jack. But yet, what about Leotrona? Jack pointed at a metallic globe. Two hemispherical light fixtures soldered together with spindly foil arms and legs attached. Ty's role in Exodus was to operate Leotrona with rods dressed in black and the Bunraku style. The robotic form would direct Nephi and his family in their journey through the space wilderness, showing them where to find food and also provide comic relief. Maybe they can just carry it, like in the story, said Ty. But you have to do the play. It's going to inspire hundreds of people. Jack, it's not just the play. Ty hesitated and took a breath. I'm leaving the church. Jack took a step back. His eyes widened. But why? This is crazy. You've been a member your whole life, just like me. Yes, I have, Jack. That's why this is a very difficult decision for me. You served a mission. You spent hours at the meeting house every week for almost 30 years, said Jack. I didn't go because of my testimony. I was trying to gain one, and it never happened. When I came back from Wyoming, I met Amy, and I played the role of a faithful husband. Ty picked up a gold spray-painted sandal. It's all been just so much theater, he said, waving the angel's shoe. Jack sat down, slumped and silent, on a silver bench, part of the interior of a boat which traveled between planets. I love Amy, Ty continued, but we're working things out. When my dad passed, I realized how much of this I was doing for him, because it was his way. I also realized my life is too short to follow a path I don't believe in. Your life is not short, it's eternal, Jack exhorted, rising dramatically again to his feet. You have made covenants. You've been given the secrets to exaltation. Will you walk away from the true gospel? Ty had dreaded this conversation. Jack was his friend, and he knew how troubling this would be for him. A clear declaration of his new viewpoint was the best way. The church supports the gospel. It gives us a way to implement the gospel in our daily lives. But the gospel is not the church. Christ lived and died for us. That is still part of my life. Even if I didn't believe it, I can't change that it happened. Jack listened, not wanting to face Ty, but willing to hear him out. Ty picked up a bow and arrow from the props strewn about the garage. It's like this bow and arrow. By itself, it's a simple and effective tool, like the message of the atonement. 
Now, you have covered this bow with aluminum tape, and this arrow has sequins glued all over it. That's like the church. For 150 years they have taken something simple and needlessly adorned it, adding on and adding on. It's a space bow and arrow. Why would space people need a bow and arrow? Ty clenched his hands and walked a little circle away from the garage around a flower bed. What are we really talking about here? You don't like my play? Jack asked. Ty circled back. The play is fine. I wish you all the best with it. I just can't support its message. My goal is to bring people to Christ. Your goal is to get more people in church. So Joseph Smith wasn't a prophet? Spencer W. Kimball isn't a prophet, said Jack, shifting the topic. What have they revealed, Ty asked. What light has been brought into the world? It's all so arbitrary. We're polygamous. We're not polygamous. Blacks can't hold a priesthood. Now they can. Jack stepped close to Ty, speaking with quiet intensity. That's it, isn't it? Brother Jenkins is passing the sacrament now. White bread on a silver tray in a black hand. In Space Exodus, Act 2, the wicked Lamanoids are stricken with the skin of greenness, said Ty. You want to talk about race? Please, leave the play out of this. I love Brother Jenkins getting the priesthood. Maybe he'll be the bishop one day. Whoa, line upon line there, said Jack, holding up his hands. Why didn't it happen earlier? It's 1978 already. You would question God and his prophet? I question the timing, said Ty. When Utah sought statehood, polygamy was put aside. This year, a temple will be dedicated in Brazil. Who's supposed to use it? Have you even been to the temple since you got married? Asked Jack. Mesa is a thousand miles away, said Ty. And frankly, I never got much out of it. If the temple ordinances are so essential, why aren't they in the Book of Mormon? Exactly what church was Joseph Smith restoring? He was a great man, and you should speak carefully about what he brought forth. Joseph Smith must have been a remarkable man, said Ty. Intelligent, charismatic, relentless. He spent his whole life absorbing the doctrines and culture around him, and he made a brand new thing out of it. Millions have embraced what he created to this day. It's amazing. He created it, Jack scoffed. So you're saying a simple farm boy wrote 500 pages of scripture? A 14-year-old? He was 24 when the book was published, and 100 pages of it are just Isaiah and It Came to Pass. He didn't walk behind a plow all day. He read books. He did debate club. Jack resumed his sullen posture on the space bench. He was so talented, he wrote 350 pages more of scripture, said Ty. The DNC, the Pearl of Great Price, he revealed, he translated, Jack protested. What about the Book of Abraham, the papyri, those absurd facsimiles in the back of the quad? A literal translation has been patently disproven. I choose to believe it, and a believer has to accept the whole thing, all of it, said Jack. Even all that crazy stuff Brigham Young said? It's too bad Apollo ended before we had a chance to convert the moon quakers. He was a prophet, but also spoke as a man. That stuff was never to be considered scripture. You're right, said Ty, but I don't think you can just pick out the things you like. You can just walk away from all of it? The whole thing? It's going to be difficult. I've been in it my whole life. Where will you find guidance? How will you answer the tough questions? The truth is, said Ty, 
I've never received an answer to prayer. It's like I never dialed the phone right, or he never picked up. He's there. He wants to make that connection. I'm not disagreeing with that, but that's not the way his will is made known to me. I guess I have to embrace the mystery. You're a father, the steward of your family. You can't just whistle in the dark, said Jack. Striving for perfection, always striving, is exhausting. What reward can be worth spending your whole life feeling like you're never good enough? I don't heed the voice telling me everything is a blessing or a punishment. I accept it all. Amor fati. Fatty? A squeaky hinge sighed in the garage. Jack's wife stepped out, followed by the aroma of a beef roast. Almost dinner time, Jack. Oh, hi, she said, noticing their guest. It's Tyler, said Jack. Good to see you, Brother Brooks. It's Tyler, Jack said again. You as well, Diane, said Tyler. The stuff for the show is coming along so great, said Diane. She picked up a stack of cardboard squares covered in glitter. He made the golden plates like floppy disks. Ty smiled and nodded in approval. Clever. I'll be along in a minute, dear, said Jack. Diane waved at them and went back in the house. The two men were silent for an interval. Long shadows fell across the dry yards down the street. I'm thinking maybe lights with gels for the green skin instead of makeup. It's messy and very expensive, said Jack distractedly. Look, you're putting on this play, said Ty. Why? You want to share part of yourself. You got something to say. How did somebody do that in upstate New York, circa 1830? Uh, ministry, preaching, said Jack. Exactly. Traveling revivals, stump sermons, maybe publish a book. Fair enough. And how did a person do that in Memphis, Tennessee, say the early 50s? Jack shot Ty a quizzical look. Ty explained. A guy gets in front of a microphone, cuts a record. His voice is heard a thousand times, or a hundred thousand times. And the impulse is the same. Joseph Smith was the Elvis of the burnt-over district. So Elvis was a prophet? What I'm saying is, if Elvis lived back then, in that place, he would have had the same drive to express himself. There could very well be a church of Presley today, said Ty. The music would be better, said Jack. He'd put green shag carpet in the chapel, said Ty, laughing. Jack laughed too. Ty took a rolled-up copy of the Star Exodus script out of his back pocket and held it out to Jack. Jack stood and looked at it. Are you sure, Ty? You were great with the puppet. Ty slowly shook his head. Jack took the script. He extended his other hand to shake. They shared a good, solid Mormon handshake. Then they hugged, each patting the other's shoulder stiffly. Good luck with the play, Jack. I mean that, said Ty. I'll be around. I'll pray for you, said Jack. Yeah, said Ty. He turned and walked away. Star Exodus had a very successful weekend and was reprised by another congregation the following spring. Inexplicably, the play gained popularity, and a few years later, Olivia Newton-John had a top 100 hit with a pop rendition of the musical number Shiny Shiny Space Fruit. Shiny Shiny Space Fruit Thanks again for listening, and until next time, Nephi is my name.